You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Well, oh, good morning, friends. It is so great to be back with you uh, as we dive back into the servant songs of Isaiah together. Um, if you haven't been with us during this Lenten season, we've been coming together to look at the series of prophecies which point to a servant of God. He's a significant figure foreshadowed by the prophet Isaiah, who's been tasked by God to bring about the salvation of not only Israel during Isaiah's time, but of the world from the state of falling away from God. And throughout, we've been asking this question, how does reflecting on the work of the servant help us better to understand and reflect on the work of Jesus on the cross? Uh, you know, I gotta say, I'm kind of a big fan of the fact that the set of prophecies gets thought of as like a series of, of songs or poems. Um, and that's not just because half of the messages in the series have been given by worship leaders and you've got this sort of thematic <laughs> consistency. But it's like, we get something, we can almost think of it as like an early concept album from Isaiah, like right in the middle of the Old Testament. Um, what a concept album is that may or may not be a familiar term. If you've never heard of it, a concept album is basically like a published recording of songs or musical works that all center around like one narrative or like a couple different themes. So for instance, you might take a series of you know seemingly unrelated songs about, oh, I don't know, like great gigs in the sky and lunatics on the grass uh, and bring them together and boom, you've got one collective sort of commentary on destructive social systems that your dad will not stop listening to. <laughs> and as we've been going through the first servant songs, we've gotten familiar with what themes are most prevalent in servant songs, the concept album. Right? And these are some of the things that Kate and Nick have walked us through over the last two weeks. You know, the servant is someone characterized by a sense of justice which spurs action. By a unique embodiment of God's righteousness which empowers him to work towards reconciliation. And we've seen that the servant is humble. We've seen that the Lord has given him a mission that, to put it mildly, is easier described than carried out. And it's not a coincidence that these same themes and these same characterizations drive this third song as well. But if you'll pardon me for beating a metaphor into the ground here, we've arrived at this sort of somber, progressive rock, deep cut uh, of our servant song concept album here. It's like, you know, track six, middle of the album, it's nobody's favorite song and nobody really can explain why, that sort of thing. And I say that because the thing we'll notice right off the bat as we get into the song is that the song is driven by tensions by contradictions, ideas that seem perfectly understandable on their own, but you bring them together into one work and they seem to disagree with one another. They seem to come into conflict with one another. And today I want to talk about two tensions in particular that are described in the third servant song. So there's one tension between power and humility, and there's a second tension between courage and suffering. We call it attention because we know what power and humility are on their own, right? We know what suffering and courage are on their own. But the worldly view of these sets of ideas is that they don't really belong together. That suffering is an obstacle to courage or that power is almost always an obstacle to humility. And what makes the Third Servant Song so interesting is that it's going to throw this assumption right out the window, at least somewhat, right? Like, 
the worldly idea of these is still going to be that they stand in opposition to to another. But the idea of the song is that someone is coming who can, will, and must reconcile these things. He can and will eliminate the tension between these ideas. And through the song, we're given an idea of how, and I'm excited to jump into this and discover it with you. I want to start in on the song talking about the idea of humility. It's one we've discussed in the series already, um, and it's the first thing we're reminded of in this particular passage. And by the way, if you have a Bible or a Bible app and you'd like to follow along, uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 50 today, focusing on verses 4 through 7. Um, Either way, the text will be on the screen as usual. It's worth starting in, once again, with the servant's humility, because the servant's humility forms the backdrop for almost everything else we learn in the song. Why? Well, for one thing, during this point, humility was a huge problem for Israel. That is to say, they had none. And God had been convicting of this at this point for quite some time. And I want to be very clear, a lot of the times when we say that someone lacks humility, we think along the lines of maybe they brag a lot or they act arrogantly a lot. But what I mean in the context of the Israelites here is that they were filled with pride and that they were willfully rebellious against the terms of their covenant with God. They knew the law well. They knew the teachings and the instructions well that they had received in order to live in righteousness. And they decide, well, we we no longer have a need for this. There's a heartbreaking declaration in Isaiah 30 that lays out their attitude at this point. We learn this. They are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Honestly, the most charitable way you can think of to read the Israelites' heart posture here is like they think they're graduating from like a training program or something like that. Yeah, this was, you know, cool. Thanks, God. But we got it. We're good. Like we've advanced past this whole covenant thing. Uh, We've got all sorts of practitioners of witchcraft and ways we could do this sort of on our own. So like thanks for getting us started, but we're good. We don't really want anything more to do with this. So this is not, to be clear, this is not sheer ignorance at work here. The people of Israel, despite knowing God's commandments towards righteousness, have deliberately chosen to act in opposition. And if you look anywhere in, oh, I don't know, the first 35 chapters of Isaiah, right, you're going to find prophecy after prophecy of God making clear that they're still not getting a picture here. They're not understanding who God is or God's plan for his creation. One such prophecy that sort of sticks out for me is earlier in the book. It's around Isaiah chapter 20. So we see Isaiah bringing a word of conviction to Egypt, right? And as he does so, he's recounting something that God commanded him to do uh, when he got there. So God basically tells Isaiah um, outside the boundaries of the city, hey, man, go ahead and just, like, leave all your clothes on the side of the road and walk through town just for a while. Like, try to see how many people you can get to notice you um, and, and do that for an extended period of time. It's tempting, I'm of course paraphrasing here, Um, it's tempting to read kind of like a teasing motivation into this, right? Like I can think of any number of times in my own life where I've been like, yeah, I've got it made, thanks God, you and your work can take a break for the week. 
Um, and I have to wonder if my reaction would have been any different if a nude prophet had walked by and been like, hey, this is what the god of the universe thinks of your arrogance there, buddy. But also there's a more serious messaging at play here. Because remember, Israel couldn't stand up to the terms of the covenant, therefore there needed to be consequences. That was why Isaiah was there, after all, to tell them, you have fallen away. And so the Assyrians are coming, going to come over, they're going to destroy everything. And the way I looked when God told me to walk around town, that's how the Assyrians will make you look. Meek, exposed, pitiable. You would not bring yourself low, and so, Israel, you will be brought low the hard way. You've acted without righteousness, and God will not compromise on his covenant. So all of this is what the servant, God's servant, is walking into. Right? And right away, the servant presents us with a very different stance towards humility. So this picture we got of the forced humility that Israel faced from the Assyrians, or that Israel was doomed to, from the Assyrians was one of deprecation, right? It was a belittling of the self, it was making the self lesser, stripping them of power, of status, of agency. Um, it's a bleak narrative. And I think there's a part of us that carries that idea into our own, like, everyday understanding of humility. That humility has to look like that. Um, if we are anything at all to ourselves, we can't in any way be humble. Scripture shows us very clearly, though, that God ultimately has something very different in mind for humility. Righteous humility is not self-deprecation as much as it is responding to God in obedience. The difference between who you are and what you do. That's what's the underpinning of this entire thing today. And I'm about to blow your mind here, but Jesus is the best model, as it turns out, uh, that we are given of what this humility looks like. Uh, if we do sort of a hashtag throwback Sunday to our series on Philippians, uh, where Paul tells us this, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Oh, hey, servant. <laughs> Being born in the likeness of men. Now you'll notice here that Paul didn't say, Jesus was in the form of God, but renounced that so he could live that humble life. He is still God in human form this entire time and has and retains all of the powers pertaining to that. But it's because he has this power that he is driven to take the form of a servant. In other words, he's driven to act in obedience to the will of his Father. Jesus' humility did not make him less powerful but it turned his actions towards obedience. Now I want us to hold this model of humility in our minds as we go through the first verse of the song here. Again, it's in Isaiah chapter 50, starting in verse four. It goes like this, let's read this together. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Now, without this context, this just kind of sounds like pretty poetry, and there is indeed some very beautiful imagery um, in all of these passages, really. But like, and it's super notable that the servant says this about himself. This is the servant speaking autobiographically here. There's such a huge difference from what we see in this passage to what we talked about last week, right? Last week, we heard about someone 
who's going to set things right throughout all of creation. And now he's talking about like being someone who's taught, right? He has the tongue of someone who's taught and hears of someone who's taught. And by the way, that sounds like a big fancy phrase, but we we're talking about what does he mean, the tongue of someone who's taught? Well, in very short, the servant considers himself a student, a lifelong student, you might even say, a disciple. He's still in the process of learning and understanding and growing, and yet he's been given this awesome agency, this awesome knowledge, and it's the way he balances these things that resolves our tension here. He has been given the agency, he's been given the power and the knowledge, and yet morning by morning he chooses to wake up and say, I'm going to hear today. I'm going to listen, as if I'm learning the will of the Lord for the very first time. And I'm going to respond to it. I'm going to act on it. I want us to try and put ourselves in that position. Could you imagine, at least for you know the adults in the room, maybe for um, younger kids this will be a little easier, but could you imagine, adults, could you imagine going back to kindergarten every day and unironically participating in the kind of learning that happens there? That'd be weird, right? Could you listen to attentively to someone explain like basic addition and subtraction and they're like probably your age if not you know younger given like depending on how old you are like could you do all the coloring activities could you do all the weird counting tricks that they try to teach you we'd probably have a hard time with it not because there's anything particularly difficult about kindergarten of course but because the reality we've made for ourselves is i have this capacity already i don't need to hear any more about it but this is where it all comes together for us, right? Right here. How often do we do that in our pursuit of Christ? And how often do we do that in even like our relationships with our loved ones? Because really, if we think about it, any time we take something for granted, we suffer from the tension between power and humility. Like when we take our quiet time in the Word for granted because, you know, we might say something like, well, I'm already pretty good at what's in here. I've been a Christian for... 20 years, I can, I can kind of let this pass. Or we might take our significant others or our spouses for granted because the desire to you know, serve our significant others lovingly, um, you know, it said, drops off after a time, after you know, the honeymoon phase or, or an imagined plateau of, of familiarity and time together. We might take our jobs for granted we might have mentalities like, oh, well, I've been here 15 years. They're not going to fire me now. Um, it's okay if I'm not faithful to this commitment or um, holding up this end of the job description as well as I would be if I were just starting. For most people, the more power we have, the more established we are in the world, the harder it is to act as if we do not have that power or that establishment the harder it is to act in humility. But as we can see, that's exactly what the servant models for us here. He resolves the tension between power and humility. He both accepts and acknowledges the power and the position God has given him in this history of creation. But he also makes the choice to listen attentively. To put it, you know, in a shorter sense, he makes the choice to act in a way that undermines his own power so that God's made him magnified. 
not ignoring the power, it's not getting rid of the power, it's just undermining the power and putting it underneath God's own. And there's so much more work here with this dynamic, but I want to move on to talking about the second big tension in this passage, which is the tension excuse me, between suffering and courage. It takes up a, a much weightier portion of the passage. The rest of it, as we, if, you know, if we read on throughout the rest of the song, it, like, it reads as considerably less rosy than the opening bit we just read together. Um, let's take a look. We're starting in verse 5 here. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Well, that took a turn, right? Like, we see this great model of humility. Uh, like, finally, the servant comes along. He's someone who gets it. He's someone who gets what God is and what he's trying to do. But then we launch right into, oh, well, by the way, I have suffered a whole lot while I was doing this work. And he does. This is where the tension comes in, right? This, this is where most humans fall short. This is where most of us fall off in resolving this tension. The passage makes very clear that even though the servant was who he was, even though the servant was chosen by God for the, for, for the purposes of bringing Israel and bringing creation back to himself. The servant will suffer a great deal of pain over the course of doing his work. And pain of all types. The passage, like, the song does not shy away here. He will be beaten, he will be tortured, he will be mocked and scorned and humiliated, physically, psychologically, emotionally, every form. And all of it undeserved, right? He was acting in obedience, right? He was acting in humility, undermining his own power. He was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. It's not the consequence for righteousness that the world expects, right? And the amazing thing is, neither is the servant's response to this. He says, I did not turn my face away. The Lord God helped me. So there's no disgrace here. There's no shame here. The stuff I should be feeling from suffering, it doesn't matter because God has assured me that this is the right thing to do. And therefore the servant faces his suffering with courage and with resilience towards the work that God put before him. Again, there are really obvious parallels uh, to Jesus' ministry here. You know, scripture gives us you know, equally graphic details about how Jesus was beaten tortured and scorned and humiliated um, prior to being crucified. And that too was undeserved, right? That too was out of obedience for God's plan for salvation. But there's something that's really easy to miss here, and I want to make sure we don't miss it this morning. right? The servant is not burying his head in the sand about his own suffering. He is not treating it naively, and he's not pretending it isn't there. Right? Rather, the servant is establishing that the work he's doing is not out of self-righteousness. That's the point here. It isn't this, um, 
ascetic and self-justifying embrace of the suffering, right? He's not trying to turn the suffering into something it isn't. His account is very honest. It hurts. Like, I don't, I, I don't know how many people who are watching this who have beards and have tried to, you know, pluck out little hairs at a time to groom them. Ouch, man. He's not doing this to lift himself up. He's establishing that the work he's doing is out of God's righteousness. He's not here to tell us he didn't suffer, God didn't take his suffering away. He brings this up for the purpose of pointing to God, of pointing to God's provision as a motivator to proceed past the suffering and do the work anyways. The servant is, you know, he, he is a suffering servant. We'll talk about that over the course of the time. And, like, the person he is is one thing, right? We've established that. The thing he does, though, because he has that power, the thing he does is obey. The thing he does is point to God and decide, I'm not going to respond to this in the way the world does, by cowering away, by turning my face, by abandoning the work, because I haven't received the worldly gratification for it. All this to say the servant responds to suffering with courage and with deference to God. And it's important that we understand that both of these are a part of the servant's response. If one is missing, then the other exists for self-righteousness. If he were going through the suffering for the sake of promoting his own bravery or promoting his own agency, his work could not have come to pass. But because he points to God, there's no room for self-righteousness, there's no room for entitlement, there's no room for the servant to put himself over the power and agency and will of God. We're going in circles here, right? You might be continuing to see these themes a little bit. These things are ultimately what drive the servant's stance towards suffering and humility. Right, there are two related concepts here. This idea that because the servant and his work are justified by the Lord, it will come to pass, and the eternity, like the suffering, will amount to nothing. We talk about this pointing to God, and we talk about this kind of subjugation of suffering a lot less in the context of Easter and in the context of what Jesus did. Right, In, in a lot of ways, you know, Good Friday through Easter is a time of mourning. Um, we see it as a sad time and a just time that is turned to joy because of the power of Christ. But it's an important part and a necessary part of discussing what, this, what Jesus is after and what the servant's after here. And we do see it in Jesus' story, right? We have, the, we have the moment where Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. Um, and he refuses to speak on his own behalf, despite constant pressuring to do so. Um, Pilate reminds him at one point, you know, Jesus, I have the power to put you to death over these things that you're saying. Right? And Jesus responds only with, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. because Jesus' work was affirmed by the Lord and because the events of that confusing and mysterious weekend were justified by the Lord. 
his actions of obedience could contradict the suffering he would be about to face. And in the same way, because the servant's work moves forward through the justification of the Lord and through the assurance that he is acting in obedience to the Lord, the servant's actions of obedience can contradict his suffering. At the end of the day, what we can take away is just as real humility is the subjugation of one's own power underneath God's power, courage in the face of suffering is pointing back to God. Pointing back to God prohibits a spirit of self-righteousness. And that's important to know because that's where the humility we just talked about comes in, right? If we're suffering for our own self-righteousness, the humility we just talked about can't exist. If we're suffering for our own self-righteousness, we can't put our own power and our own agency and our own work under that of God. But if we're pointing to someone else, it's no longer at risk, right? We can continue to be disciples. We can continue to act in obedience, whether we're suffering or not. So because we have someone who, against all odds and against all cultural pressures, can hold these things into balance, again we see a resolution of the tension. The opposite notions of suffering and courage, uniquely embodied in one person, God's chosen servant, in his response of obedience. There's a lot more to talk about with this song, but it's important that we bring it back to our present moment here. Um, and it's important that we put a, put a sort of topper on, the, on this conversation about the Third Servant Song with a challenge. Right, as we go through these pieces of scripture um, in the Old Testament that seem so temporally and culturally distant from our own point of reference, like we approach closer and closer to observing Christ's work on the cross at Easter time. And it's important at this point to take a moment and ask ourselves, like, this concept album of servant songs, what is it commenting on? We take response at this point, as to, or we take stock at this point, excuse me, as to why these responses matter. At the end of the day, Jesus undeservedly died the most brutal death imaginable, despite resolving both of the tensions in this song while he was on the earth. So we need to make sure we understand why Jesus, why the cross. I think the servant song that, we, that we've been talking about today goes a long way towards helping us understand that. If you've been with us over the last several months, we've gone through several books in the Old Testament, from Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, um, several others. And in each of these books, whether we've talked about it explicitly or not together, there's been a cycle, right? a cycle of, of the covenant of God's people where God will empower his people with the spirit. These people will fall. The people will cry out. And then God will come in and redeem them through grace. Right? Over and over this happens across generations and generations. And at the end of the day, like the world is just too far into this spiral of empowerment and, and pride and falling and redemption. 
it became clear that there was no resolution for these tensions here. The notions of suffering and courage and the notions of humility and power would always remain diametric opposites for us. We needed something else. It's been plainly obvious over the past three weeks, like the parallels between Jesus and this and this servant who's talked about in Isaiah. Um, and above all else, above the humility and above like their purpose and their power, we learned that they are uniquely qualified um, against their own context, right? In a world where these things are attention, the servant is able to hold them together. Jesus is able to hold them together. And in doing so, he is the only one who is able to break the cycle. He was the one who had the power to do what no other human was able to do. And that leads us to a realization, right? If God in human form is able to humble himself by placing the Father's power and will over his own, are we not compelled to do that ourselves? Are we not compelled to strive for that? And if God in human form can take God's vindication for his actions and place that above the suffering he faces for those actions, are we not compelled to strive for that ourselves? As we reflect on this sort of darker third song, takes obedience and takes suffering, um, a cause and effect that to the world is foreign, but to God is a natural connection. We need to ask ourselves, is there suffering in our lives that we can respond to by pointing to God? Is there self-righteousness that we may be looking for in the ways we handle this suffering? Is there power or status or capacity in your life that God may be asking you to undermine? Is there something you're taking for granted? Something that may be a source of pride to which you may need to say, God has blessed me richly with this, but I'm going to listen. I'm going to roll it back, and I'm going to look for ways that I can be a servant and act in obedience to what God may be asking me to do Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? It's one of the faith's greatest mysteries, but I think it does help us address both of these questions pretty meaningfully. And when we're and when you know scripture presents us with stories of obedience like this, um, from the servant, from Jesus, from the multitudes of, of prophets and disciples who did the work of the Lord of biblical history. Um, I would hope that that would encourage us as we reflect on this major event um, in the history of our faith um, to think about ways we might follow suit. Um, to, to look this tension of advantage and power and courage 
together with suffering and, and, and downsides and downtroddenness. Look it in the face and have the courage to hold both because we have a God who empowers us to do that.